Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, we wanted to pause on politics for a moment and talk a little bit about policy. Over the last few years, Luke and I have discussed this ongoing trend of underfunding the state's education system. But amidst a global pandemic and an economic crisis, Georgia schools have faced unprecedented challenges over the last year. And so I wanted to bring in an expert to go deeper on the funding decisions that the state makes regarding its public schools and the challenges that result from those funding decisions. So today we're going to talk with Dr. Stephen Owens, a senior policy analyst from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, focused on policies impacting Georgia's K-12 through schools. Dr. Owens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So as you and I speak, lawmakers are working their way through the budget for the rest of the current fiscal year and the next fiscal year. And the largest piece of that budget every year is what the state spends on public education. Can you tell us about the main formula that Georgia uses to fund its K-12 schools, how it works, and the trends you've seen in recent years about how adequately it's been funded? Yeah, so it is a intricate formula of the way to determine what's the amount of funding needed to get students um, to flourish in the state. And it's based around what are the programs that we need to fund for each part of a child's day. So seven cents out of every dollar that goes into public schools is going to salaries and benefits of teachers. And that's pretty standard for other states. And the formula is built around the idea of how many teachers for students Um, do we need in each one of these programs? And so we pay for a smaller class size for kindergarten classes, for special education classes, uh, for our remedial education courses, Um, but we provide less funding in the formula for ninth through 12th graders. That's actually the base amount. And then everything else is given a weight higher than that. So that provides your direct instructional costs. And then there are indirect costs on top of it, which don't make much sense to be tied just to a formula, like having a vice principal or having a media center in the school. And then finally, very last are categorical grants. And these are um, grants of different size meant as a way to kind of um, level the playing field or provide other services that just can't easily fit into a formula like school bus transportation. And when Georgia passed this in the mid eighties, it immediately pushed a billion extra dollars to public schools. And I mean, that's in the eighties. And it made Georgia out as a leader, definitely in the Southeast uh, for our funding system. And that continued for several years, but the last 12 to 15 years since the great recession and maybe even before that, um, the state has eroded different parts of the formula and just underfunded the Quality Basic Education Act altogether 17 of the last 19 years. And in the governor's proposed budget, which just came out, um, it would lessen the new cut to the Quality Basic Education Act, um, but it would mean that we would have another one next year and around the realm of $400 million. And so what was once this kind of model, definitely in the Southeast for how to fund schools, has been chipped away and eroded. So now it's kind of a shell of its former self. Something that was kind of new to me was the decision lawmakers have made on some of those other categorical grants. You mentioned transportation. Equalization is another one of those. Can you tell us a little bit more about those categorical grants and whether those have also been subject to the kind of underfunding that we've seen in the big QBE formula? Oh, absolutely. So it's 
we've underfunded QBE for, again, 17 of the last 19 years, but that usually grabs headlines that quality-based schools aren't quote-unquote fully funded. But all these other grants, grants that sit on top of it, schools that receive it, usually schools with less funding that they can get from other sources, rely on those even more. And so, you know, as I'm sure you know, the United States is unique in how much we rely on local property taxes to fund our local public schools, which means that you could cross county lines and have a completely different system of education and far fewer or far greater opportunities offered just based on the value of properties in that neighborhood and in that community. So if Georgia just gave this same amount to every single district based on their students, then there would be these huge inequities because school some school districts would be able to raise property taxes and just get millions more to sit on top of it. All that to say, the equalization grant's really important because it tries to level the playing field. It says, if you can levy this much more in taxes, if you're unable to levy more in taxes or unable to get more back from taxes, then the state will give you more in order to equalize. And that's not a charity case. I mean, this is something that all states have to do in one form or another. Otherwise, we're, we're abdicating our responsibility to provide a constitutional responsibility to provide an adequate and public education. And so that's what the Equalization Grant does that. And yeah, as you mentioned, after the Great Recession, that grant was capped and then lowered to the tune of about $400 million every single year. Um, that's just less money that low wealth school districts get, usually districts that are further away from Metro Atlanta. Um, and, and then there are other grants like transportation where we've just been giving about the same amount of money since 2002, uh, when our student enrollment's grown by hundreds of thousands of students. Um, when, when all of this arrives at the schoolhouse, it just means that there are more needs than there are actually dollars to pay for it. Yeah. So in this discussion, a lot of numbers get thrown around and, and this general concept of underfunding, as you mentioned, is, tends to be what makes the headlines, but you've actually surveyed schools about the impacts that these funding shortfalls have had and the tough decisions that schools and districts have to make when they get less funding. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned in last year's survey that you did? So I think that there was this talk that I heard in the Gold Dome that school districts are really well off because we'd had 11 years of economic growth and they have all this money sitting in reserves. And we spent a long time um, surveying school districts to see, is that true? And the answer is that our schools took such a hit after the Great Recession and even before then. Again, we've been cutting funding to schools since 2002 in the state of Georgia. Schools have taken such a hit year over year that really the past 11 years before COVID was just trying to get back to some sort of baseline of, of what's the public education you're going to offer to students. And so, yes, a lot of school districts were able to build up some reserves for rainy days, but we found that 13 districts that we talked, that we surveyed, said they would use every single penny of their reserves in this year alone. So they had 11 years to build up their reserves. It's all going to be gone, which means that if we have these budget cuts continue into the future, then that means additional furlough days. That means larger class sizes. And we're already seeing that happen now. And uh, superintendents said that they would have to um, cut additional programs. We saw after the Great Recession, and that meant art and music programs. Um, if a teacher leaves, maybe not hiring a new person in that position. Um, the Georgia Department of Education had a survey out where they found just huge numbers of districts have already done this, just not 
not having the same quality of education next year as we had last year because of this you know, next deep round of cuts. And do you have a sense of the kind of position schools will be in after this year's budget? I, you probably have this number better than me, but I think the governor's proposed budget carries forward about 40% of the QBE cut from last year. Are schools going to continue to face these kinds of tough decisions and any sense of the reaction that they would have if those budgets are ultimately put into place for next year? The short answer is it depends because we have 180 school districts across the state of Georgia, a lot of independent state charter schools. And so I'm willing to bet that a lot of more are more well-off larger school districts are going to be able to make it through with the reserves they have and with the significant federal money that's coming in. But that's one-time funding. Like you can't hire a lot of teachers on one-time funding. Um, but there is such a big difference between how those well-off, usually Metro Atlanta districts are going to be able to handle these versus our, our rural smaller districts, which already are penalized in the way that we fund schools. And the conversations I've had with school districts um, further away from Metro Atlanta paints a very grim picture of what they're going to be able to do. And it's where we go from these, you know, huge millions of dollars to talking about like, we cannot levy any more, like our sales tax aren't coming in. So we're not going to be able to replace the roof. Or we thought that we were going to get more money from the state. So we can't hire another kindergarten teacher. I mean, it's a very grim picture Uh, for our school districts that rely more on state funding versus those that can rely more on funding from other areas. So it sounds like there's a need to increase the funding that schools get in our state. And GVPI has advocated for a new funding mechanism called an opportunity weight. Can you tell us what an opportunity weight is and why Georgia should adopt one in the funding formula? Yeah, so let's imagine a world where every single grant we have is fully funded where the state gives enough money for school buses and to equalize uh, local property taxes, a world I would love to live in. That still really just gets us to like a solid basement level of what our funding should look like. I mean, the goalposts have been moved so, so far that even getting to that, we would treat it like an incredible win. But really, that's just what the basic level we need to be providing schools so they can perform their duties to the communities and to families. But what's left is the fact that we know in the 30 years since this formula was written, we have more research on um, what it is like for a child living in poverty to be educated in the United States and in Georgia. And that if we want to have students graduating with the same amount of opportunity, then that means that we need to have additional funding for students um, whose parents don't make as much. And this is not a new idea. Georgia is one of only eight states that does not do this. Um, So Representative Scott has pre-filed a bill, House Bill 10, which would do exactly that, which would provide additional funding for these students. It would be money that goes to the district specifically meant to educate these students kind of in the way that we have weights in the formula for kindergarten, for CTAE, for special education, we would have a unique weight for students living in poverty so the districts could do right by them. So another perennial debate in the legislature is the use of vouchers to pay for students to attend schools outside of the public school system. 
up to now, what has George's history with vouchers been? Which kinds do we have? And, and what do we know about the students who've used vouchers to attend schools outside the public system? It depends on how far you want to go back, but <laughs> I'm willing to go far. Back. I mean, vouchers came about as a way to get around desegregating schools. I mean, this is this is not a new program in the state of Georgia or in the South. But this was uh, a lot of segregation academies popped up. I'm not I'm not saying every pr private school operates this way or began this way. I'm saying vouchers as a policy were created in the United States as a way to get around desegregating schools. And there was a bill in the 1950s of the idea of completely dissolving the state of Georgia's responsibility for public education and instead just give everyone the money that they would otherwise get and let them go to whichever school, wink, wink, they want. So that did not happen, thankfully, but this is not a new policy and it's one that's uh, gained steam because of its uh, it's so easy to understand. Why can't I just have my money to go to a private school? The problem is that in practice in the state of Georgia and in other states, we've just never seen this do right by the students that it's supposedly targeting. So Georgia has two vouchers right now, a special needs scholarship and a tax credit voucher. And the Department of Audits and Accounts just performed a performance audit on the tax credit voucher and found that there were so few controls and accountability that there's really no way of knowing where the state of Georgia sends $100 million every single year. We don't even know how many kids are participating in it. We know how many scholarships are sent out, but could two go to the same child? We don't know what schools they're going to. Are these schools accredited? Do the teachers have bachelor's degrees? One pretty salacious detail is that in 2019, one scholarship granting organization, these are pass-through organizations, um, which then write the voucher. Um, one received about $700,000 while the, the founder, the person who runs this organization was on trial for securities fraud. So it, it feels like we have no idea <laughs> what the return on investment is for, for these. So the idea that we need to create another voucher, that, so HB60, um, has been filed, and it would create another voucher that once fully implemented would cost just under half a billion dollars a year. And GBPI has a longstanding opposition to policies like this um, because of its tendency to lead to more segregation, um, racial and income segregation. Um, the, the little amount of data we have from the special needs voucher shows that white students are overrepresented in these vouchers. Um, data out of Arizona showed that over the last 15 years of their vouchers, because they have hundreds of millions of dollars in vouchers, the number of students in private schools didn't really change, but the amount of funding, the amount of private school funding from the state had gone up to $300 million. So what that told us is that this is not some lifeline to students in struggling schools whose parents have no other option, but rather parents who can already afford to send their kids to private school are making use of these funds to subsidize their education. It's, it's been really hard to hear the General Assembly in the past few years talk about the state propping up failing schools when we have no idea if we are writing blank checks to prop up failing private schools. And for that reason, it, it's my hope that lawmakers will resist HB 60 because it's just, there's a million different ways it's a bad bill. Those are just a few. It targets schools that are closed to in-person instruction. I mean, 
we talk about local control all the time in the state of Georgia and allowing the government that's closest to you to make the decisions. But instead, this is the state saying, no, we got it. We're going to tell every single school that if you don't open as soon as possible, then we're going to, you know, erode all of this public funding and send it to private schools. So not a great history, to say the least. Yeah, did I understand correctly? I noticed this in the HB 60 proposal that this bill and that criteria seems to target schools that have had to make decisions to go to virtual learning amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Is that really one of the new things at issue in this bill, that if if schools went virtual in the middle of COVID, that they could essentially be penalized for having made that decision? Yeah, almost an identical bill um, was filed in 2019. And this is just the new addition, is that it would also include schools, it would um, include parents whose children go to schools that aren't open for 100% in-person instruction. And the amount of funding they take the average amount of state funding for students, but you would not get the local funding that you would get at your local public school. You would forfeit uh, the federal funding you get, especially if you're a student with disability and the federal protections as far as providing an adequate public education is required by IDEA. All that to say, the idea that giving kids a prorated amount of what they would earn in funding for education and then saying like, do whatever you can is not the way the state provides an education for every single student. That It is just a, a very bad policy to cut like a discounted rate and then say like, good luck finding a private school for $5,300. That, that, that is not the way to, to serve the students of Georgia, especially those that have been marginalized in the past. So we've talked about the consistent underfunding of the, of the school Funding formulas. One tool that local school districts and some advocates have used in the past is to actually sue the state over the amount of funding that lawmakers allocate to local public schools. What can you tell us about lawsuits like these? What is typically at issue in these lawsuits? And and given what we've discussed about Georgia's track record on school funding, is there a case to be made that Georgia is underfunding their schools to a degree that could leave them open to a lawsuit? So the way that we have our current funding formula is it's the way that it is because of a lawsuit in the late 70s that the vast majority of beneficial change in education funding in Georgia and in most states happens because of of lawsuits. Um, But since then, in 2005, uh, a lawsuit made it pretty far with this um, discussion around it that they have a pretty strong case. And so it's this consortium of low wealth rural school districts. And they made the case that we do not have the funding we need in order to perform this constitutional duty, that the state is not doing what it's required. And the case was pulled not because of its merit, but because of a change in judges and some political intrigue that I would love to dive in with you later on at a different date. Um, But all I can say is that lawsuit was filed before the Great Recession, and we made all of these draconian cuts since then. I mean, since then, we've had billion-dollar-plus cuts for multiple years. We lowered the grant that's meant to equalize funding. So if, if that, what I can say is that if that lawsuit had a strong case, that the state wasn't doing what was required, then there's an even stronger case today. Well, Dr. Stephen Evans, we really appreciate you joining the podcast. Um, 
your work has been vital to me in understanding these school funding issues. If our listeners want to learn more about the work that you're doing, about the work that GBPI is doing on these issues and others, how could they do that? Go to gbpi.org. Um, if you wanted to see something specifically about our voucher work, then our comms department has put together a great website, and it's gbpi.org slash vouchers. Um, but you'll be able to see our work there. Alrighty, well, and listeners, you'll find those links in our show notes. Dr. Stephen Owens, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.